Now, if we were to scan through the book of Acts and pick out the top 15 most miraculous and dramatic moments within the book, what might make your top five? Certainly Pentecost. That'd be there, right? Or how about the, the Damascus Road conversion of the Apostle Paul? That'd be pretty cool. Or how about Peter escaping from prison with the help of an angel? That was a pretty dramatic event. For me, it may not seem like a miraculous thing, but what takes place in Acts 15 is quite miraculous. That would make my list. Church leaders gathered in Jerusalem to discuss the issue of Gentiles practicing Jewish law, particularly circumcision, to be considered a believer in Jesus Christ. Jewish converts had a very difficult time separating Judaism from the new covenant. And this created all kinds of expectations to be put upon converts, particularly Gentile converts. Now we know already that there's been much discussion about this issue at what was called the Jerusalem Council. Uh, That's where you had leaders from around that region that gathered together to talk about this. Those Jews that were in favor of circumcision were given an opportunity to present their case before the other leaders. And Paul and Barnabas gave testimony to what they saw. Now, what could have happened, and in fact, all too often it happens, is that there would have been a great division or split within the church. I mean, it's all too common that people arrogantly refuse to discuss matters and hold on to their agendas. Of course, they do it with all kinds of Christianese language. The fact is, is it disrupts unity in the church. Christ takes a back seat. So instead here, what took place? Godly leadership and a humble willingness on the part of all the participants took place They made concessions, and that won the day. To me, that's quite amazing. That's pretty cool. Uh, It was perhaps one of the greatest moments in the early church. Now, God, this is what I want you to see. When did God do some of his best work? God did some of his best work in the middle of a disagreement. God did some of his best work in the middle of a theological conflict, a religious argument. So let's read about it. Acts 15, verses 12 through 21. Let's all stand. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what 
has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take a passage that is often misunderstood, that frankly seems confusing. At one point it seems to be saying, you don't have to practice the law, and then James throws in what seems like law. And so, what is it you're saying? Give us clarity. Help us to know how to apply the principles that you're given here in Acts. And I pray that we, as a church body, can honor the principles given, that we can hold your word high, and that we can be thoughtful about how we approach these things, humble about how we treat one another. And uh, may we reflect the truth that's given here. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who are serious about their commitment to you. And I pray that even today we might grow um, in honoring you, submitting to you, and acknowledging your lordship over our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So in verse 7, which we did not read, we're told that there was much debate. And then Peter gave testimony to how God had welcomed the Gentiles and challenged his Jewish audience not to test God by demanding that Gentiles subscribe to circumcision. Well, apparently, what Peter had to say had great impact upon this Jerusalem council and all who were attending. It says that all the assembly fell silent. That silence was perhaps the perfect expression. As in most conflicts, we often take great effort, we should take great effort to keep our mouths shut, all right? And to listen, particularly when the facts are stacked against the case that we might be making. When our mouths are open, there's a lot less learning, right? And in many conflicts, we get, you know, wrong impressions. We come to erroneous conclusions. Assumptions can be an enemy to understanding. It's always best to hear from the other side before we speak. And here we read in Proverbs, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Have you ever met people who are just in love with the sound of their own voice? They just love to hear themselves talk. Barnabas and Paul shared from their own experiences and gave God the glory for what he did. Supernatural ways that he exhibited that the Gentiles were now being accepted by God. This was during their first missionary journey. Now, how were the opponents of Paul and Barnabas to argue against this? I mean, they either had to think that that Paul was lying, that he was making this up, or they could concede that what he was saying was true, 
that God was, in fact, accepting Gentiles into to be considered as God's people. I mean, God had confirmed all this with miracles, uh, such as causing blindness to a magician who was getting in the way of the gospel being communicated to a political leader. Or Paul healing a crippled man in Lystra. Or Paul surviving a stoning. Paul shared his experience with these people about all these things that God was doing, confirming what was being done and and opening up the eyes to the Gentiles, to the gospel. Not in putting Judaism in front of them, but just the gospel. And sharing with them that God was working in the midst of all that. It reminds me that we often get sheepish about talking about the gospel because we think that, you know, we don't know all the Bible verses. We can't answer all the questions. But my dear friends, there is much power in just sharing our story and how God changed our own life and the difference that the gospel made in us. And I just want to encourage you to do that and not get hung up if you don't know all the arguments. Just share your experience that you had with Christ and the change that God made in you. That's a, that's a powerful thing to any heart that's willing to listen. Verse 13 says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. First, who's James? James is a very prominent leader within the early church. And he's ready here to give kind of a a summary statement. Uh, You may know also that James was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote the first epistle in the New Testament. Chronologically, it's it's the first book written in the New Testament, the book of James. Peter's argument was that he was there when God opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, particularly Cornelius and his family. There was a vision that God gave to confirm that this was taking place. And that vision was confirmed by others as well. And then there was the miracle of the Holy Spirit indwelling these Gentiles. And it was confirmed, at least in this case, by speaking in tongues. Now, Peter was well known, and so was James. And neither of these guys were crackpots in in sharing these stories. So it was unlikely that they were just making these things up. I mean, the goal in sharing these stories was to show that God was including Gentiles to be amongst his people and was not putting any part of Judaism to get in the way. He then turns to another source, and this may be a surprising one for some, and that is the Old Testament. And even though he quotes from a particular passage, he uses prophets in the plural, implying that this is a written representation of other prophets within the Old Testament. Notice verse 17. He uses the phrase, 
says the Lord. In other words, when the prophet spoke about this Gentile inclusion, they are indeed speaking for the Lord. Pretty cool. And James is loosely quoting from the book of Amos, Amos 9, 11 through 12, and it says this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, written in about 750 B.C., this book addresses Israel that was enjoying relative peace, but still was struggling with moral corruption and and decay during that time. So the promise was that God would eventually restore Israel and take in Edom, a Gentile nation. When Acts 15 quotes this passage, You know, Edom is kind of in the backdrop backdrop as a representative of all Gentiles. Now, the raising up of the tabernacle or booth of David, that speaks about God's people. The obvious reference is that Gentiles are being called in as God's people as well. And, And the restoration of Israel is incomplete without them. It's an amazing truth. In the Old Testament, it would be an unlikely place to find an invitation to the Gentiles. But there it is. And though David's glory would be in the past, God would raise up a Messiah from David's descendants and restore the hope, not only of Israel, but for Gentiles. How amazing that James shows that Gentile inclusion is an Old Testament doctrine. I mean, I'd like to have seen the eyes of those that were at that Jerusalem council. It's like, that's what that means? Wow. Now, in the Gentiles, God was choosing a people for himself. It's an important thing to understand. A restored people of God, Jew and Gentile in Christ. Now, the Jews knew that Gentiles could come to salvation, but they had to convert to Judaism. It was a whole other thing for them to be included as the people of God without going through the pathway of Judaism. And that's exactly the message of the gospel. Now, here's the thing, though. How exactly was this supposed to work out in the first century? All right. I imagine the Jews are probably saying to themselves, all right, so we get this, that, that you know, circumcision is not required for salvation. You know, we can warm up to this idea. But how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to relate to one another, fellowship together in the same church? I mean, from a religious standpoint, a cultural standpoint, a racial standpoint, you couldn't find two groups more different. How are they to come together and, and be one within the church? I mean, hey, James, are you asking us to basically deny our identity, our Jewish identity? Now, some Jewish converts were very jealous for both the future glory of Christ and the past glory of the law in Moses. 
It seemed to them that the acceptance of Gentiles as spiritual equals, that just jeopardized the future of Israel. That it was a concession that just seemed to them and their thinking to be, just be too much. Perhaps we can understand a little bit more about what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians that the body of Christ is a mystery. It's a mystery. I can't quite explain how it is that people so different could, could come together and be at one. It's an amazing thing. Definitely mysterious. But this certainly brings up relevant questions for us today. I mean, we minister within a society in America that's becoming an increasing melting pot of, of different peoples and cultures, right? Or how about missionaries that go to Muslim countries? Are they to ignore all of Muslim culture? Are they to do that? No. Why? Because they would be seen as arrogant imperialists, and it would be doing damage to the gospel if you ignore all the customs. Verse 19 says this, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what, what has been strangled and from blood. Now the word used for not trouble, it can be translated annoy or to cause difficulty. So James says that the Jews were not to annoy or trouble or create difficulty for the Gentiles by putting unnecessary demands upon them to be counted as the people of God. But then James addresses the Gentiles. And he names four things that they should do. It's already been established what the gospel is to them. It's already been established that you do not need Jewish prerequisites to be counted as a Christian. That's already been plain. So what James is talking about here is not salvation. What he's talking about is the relationship between Jew and Gentile. See, the early church didn't have buildings like this. The early church typically met in homes, and they would share a meal together. That was their common experience. So if the Gentiles hosted a church event, a meal, a service, and then they ate food that Jewish believers considered unclean, that would be causing an unnecessary offense to the Jews in the church. And that would cause a division. The four requirements suggested by James were aimed at making fellowship possible between Jew and Gentile Christians. It's really more about cultural sensitivity. As soon as I say that, I realize that bells and you know, lights go off in people's heads. But you're thinking about it through a political lens, and you have to set that aside. Think about it in terms of a biblical lens, the kingdom of God, and two cultures trying to come together unifying within a church. Cultural sensitivity. That means loving your brothers and sisters enough 
so that they are not unnecessarily offended. Now, there are plenty of passages in the New Testament that talk about this kind of a thing. Uh, Romans 14 and 15 gives a, a, a long piece of instruction about this. It's kind of summarized in Romans 14, 20 that says this. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. I mean, from a moral standpoint, you can eat what you want. But there are other people who have these, you know, real sensitivities to some foods, okay? And it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. We probably need a little bit more information to help with this. Consider 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, There's another extended passage to talk about this. Problem that was going on is that you had some Gentile Christians that were buying meat in the street market, and that meat was a part of you know an animal that had been sacrificed in idol worship, in idol sacrifices. And so some Christians who used to be involved in that idol worship, you know, they, they came to Christ. Some of these Christians they did not want to make direct contact with that meat that had been involved in this idol worship because to them, it just their, their conscience was, was very sensitive and greatly bothered if they went to another Christian's house to eat and knew that they had this kind of meat being offered. They couldn't eat it. Now, it's not that it was immoral for those Christians to offer that meat. It was insensitive. It'd be like a Christian offering beer to a person that used to be an alcoholic or is presently an alcoholic. It's not morally wrong to do that, but it's extremely insensitive to do that. And it causes your brother to stumble in an area in which his conscience, you know, is is greatly bothered. Just not being very thoughtful. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, 12 through 13. Thus sinning against your brother's and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against uh, Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, the weak brother is defined here as a person who had had experience with that thing, like, you know, eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Therefore, his conscience is bothered. You know, after his conversion, his conscience is bothered by eating this meat. A weak brother is not anybody, you know, like a legalist who comes along and says, hey, you know, you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't eat that meat. I mean, anybody can say that. But the weak brother is defined by a person who had experience in that thing. And so doing it now post-conversion, it it might cause them to sin and enter into that activity again. So uh, Paul's just saying, hey, just be sensitive to that. Love demands that we be willing to limit our freedom so that our brother or sister does not feel compelled to participate against their conscience in something that they would consider to be sin. Again, these prohibitions listed here, these are not for the purpose of making Gentiles into proselytes to Judaism, but to facilitate unity and fellowship between these Jewish and Gentile segments of the church. I can't say this enough, that James, these recommendations have nothing to do with requirements for salvation, but with Jews and Gentiles living in harmony. 
So, in Acts 15, James is telling the Gentiles to consider adjusting their behaviors so that when they share the gospel with Jews or when they're fellowshipping with Jews in the church, that they're not offensive. First, abstain from things polluted by idols. Obviously, talking about the meat, that meat would be polluted in their minds to the Jews. And idol worship to Jews, big thing, right? I mean, even pre-Mosaic law, they knew not to worship idols. So it's a very sensitive thing then to have meat offered to idols. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with that. That would definitely be considered unclean. And then the Gentiles were to abstain from sexual immorality. Well, duh, right? We should know that. But the Gentile culture had a much different code. Actually, kind of had no code at all when it came to sexuality. You could pretty much just do whatever you wanted. The Jews had a much different view of that. And we can't think that just because when a person comes to Christ, they're automatically going to follow every area in perfect obedience. You know, you might have homosexuality going on, or you might have, you know, people living together, or, you know, adultery, a whole host of things going on. What James is saying is, listen, as Gentiles, you cannot be doing this kind of thing. You lose your audience. The Jews already see you as dirty, and all you're doing is compounding the problem. You'll be looked at as a hypocrite. They're not going to hear anything you have to say about God or the gospel. And so... They have to learn through teaching, through discipleship, through reading of the word, that their sexual life is also to come under the lordship of Christ. Otherwise, they're going to lose their audience. So he has to restate this for the Gentiles. Now, I can only assume that these things that are listed are things that James understood would be cultural you know, hot buttons for his audience, so that's why he names them. The second two items had to do with diet. Again, this is not about requiring the Christians to live under the law, but about these Gentile Christians living within a culture, church culture, with other Jews, and to do so with thoughtfulness and love. They were abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. The prohibition of eating blood but you ever had blood sausage? If you're in a foreign country, there's such a thing as, as blood sausage. I've had it before when we visit. You had to eat what was put right in front of you. It was kind of gross. But uh, anyway, the, the, the prohibition against eating blood was given by God before the Mosaic Law in the Noahic Covenant. In Genesis 9, 4, it says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That's repeated in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Law as well. So if, if an animal is killed by strangulation, some of the blood will remain in the body and make that meat unfit for Jews to eat. Hence the admonition against strangulation. So kosher meat is meat that comes from clean animals, has been killed properly, so that the blood has been totally drained from the body. If Gentile believers were to ignore these instructions they would be putting a hindrance before the Jews. They'd have a hard time gaining any trust or respect from fellow Jewish believers 
because that is the way that they have lived all of their life. And even though they've, they've come to Christ, they still have these cultural expectations. It's not a matter of salvation. It's not even a matter of the Gentile believers being holy because God didn't require these things. It's a matter of not offending your brother or sister in Christ who have been from a, a different culture. So cultural sensitivity is not about compromise. They're, they're not compromising some principle of Scripture by doing some of these things. They're simply operating out of love and, and, and respect, right? I mean, that's why, you know, for instance, when Janet and I, we've had a Muslim friend over to, to eat, we're going to be sensitive to dietary restrictions. Can't eat pork. They don't do any alcohol. You don't have wine at the meal, okay? Uh, they would consider that to be rude if you did such a thing. Or how about if you go to a Muslim country? Do you completely ignore their customs for such a thing as dress, particularly for women? Uh, if you did, that would be a roadblock in communication. So James' proposal teaches us about life together in a culturally diverse community. So let me just suggest this, that we have to say no to that temptation of being cultural imperialists, demanding that, that others conform to our cultural standards before we accept them and their spiritual experiences. Okay? I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a statement about relationships within the body of Christ. We have to reject any notion that seeks to put minorities or different cultures in their place because we are blinded by our own ideologies that view them as, as enemies, that are fearful, instead of seeing every human being on earth has been made in the image of God. That's the truth of the matter. And we have to that, let that reign in our view of people and not any other ideology get in the way of that. God's love demands that we express respect. And we have to live out that respect to the extent of using our freedom to forego that may be permissible to us otherwise, right? Now, here's, here's a common one, especially for southwest Missouri, all right? I've seen this around, so I feel like this is, a, this is an application that can easily be made, all right? Are we free to wear a Confederate hat? Are we free to fly a Confederate flag at our house or on the back of our pickup. You are free to do those things. Living in America, there is civic freedom to do that. But love would require that you not flaunt such an expression. Arrogance demands that you have the freedom of expression no matter what. That's arrogance. Love limits behavior for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of respecting other people that we live amongst. 
I'll let the Apostle Paul speak to this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being himself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, and remember how I define, you know, conscience that's weak. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. So Paul is saying, I don't want to do anything that gets in the way of my communication to other people about the gospel. That's the most important thing. What's not the most important thing is my freedom to express myself as American. Okay? And then, you know, all caps on Facebook, you know. It's like, geez, just shut up, all right? Listen, we are, we are the people of God, and we have to, we have to exhibit this, this sensitivity and humility. Now, through some years, it seems like compromise. I know because I grew up this way, okay? But I'm, I'm just, I beg you to consider these passages, and before you speak, allow the Holy Spirit of God to just let this soak in. Let the Word of God, you know, meditate on the Word of God, and ask yourself, how does that change the way that I should relate in a culturally diverse society? It doesn't mean we have to accept everything. It doesn't mean we abrogate principles of Scripture. But what it means is I set some freedoms aside for the sake of the gospel. You know why? Because numero uno is not me. The kingdom of God. The laws of God. My relationship with God. That is preeminent over everything. So that's what I have to filter that through. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James brings a, a practical reminder to the Gentiles that just about everywhere they go, there's going to be a Jewish synagogue. There's going to be a Jewish community. So be sensitive about this and their customs for the sake of the gospel. Okay. Our identity, listen, our identity is ultimately in our relationship with Christ and not in our culture. But we're not being asked to deny our culture. I can still embrace our culture. But what we're being asked to do is to recognize culture's proper place, and it's to be subservient to the kingdom of God. And I'm to be a servant in the kingdom of God. And I'm to align with, with God's goals and purposes in my life and not let some of these other things get in the way. So again, James is just telling the Gentiles, all right, just be sensitive when you go to these other communities. It's not all about you. 